Welcome to Daisy Us Productions, featuring conscious living interviews. I'm your host, Daisy Oz. Welcome to Daisy Oz Productions in Studio 7. This week, I have a very interesting guest who's had a near-death experience at four years old and has been researching consciousness for over 40 years through science and experiential realization, Sperry Andrews. He is the founder and director of the Human Connection Institute. Sperry has given presentations on human connectedness at the United Nations World Business Academy, Duke University, University of Connecticut, UC Berkeley, and the Association for Research and Enlightenment. His articles have appeared in Cosmos and History, Cosmos Journal, Frontier Perspectives, Alternative Therapies, and Exceptional Human Experience. So welcome and aloha, Sperry Andrews. Mahalo, Daisy. Wonderful to be with you and your viewing audience. Thank you. I love your background. Thanks. That's a painting. Uh, it's actually a wax gouache or a wax encaustic where you melt hand ground pigments into beeswax and then melt them together and however you feel like. Wow. Did you do that? Yeah. Oh, my. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I do a little bit of artwork. I just watercolor. And it is good therapy. Very mm. good. My mom and dad were both uh, artists, uh, painters, and uh, I've been a painter all my life as well. Nice. It was the only way I had could find to uh, communicate with them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Through art. <laughs> Here, mom and dad. <laughs> this is what I think. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. <laughs> well, speaking of your childhood, I'm curious about your near-death experience, Barry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, On my mother's side, my grandfather committed suicide when I was two, and my grandmother committed suicide when I was four, which impacted my mom and my relationship with my mother. And I was, um, you know, I didn't know what death was. And I I was very interested in Zorro because Zorro was saving the day all the time. And so I was out in the woods playing Zorro, And uh, this big old tree that had been losing its bark for some time had fallen over. And I was very impressed with this tree. And the trunk was as wide as my hands could reach almost. And I I felt like, I'm going to get up on top of this tree. This is fallen over. I'm getting up there. And I got up. And there was a branch that went out about 20 feet, about 10 inches wide. And I thought, well, Zorro would... In order to get good at uh, this, I'm I'm learning to save the day. Uh, I started kind of crawling out, and I said, "No, Zorro wouldn't do that." So I got up, and I w- was very gingerly going step by step out onto this branch, knowing nothing about dead trees and how branches can break. Uh, I got out quite a ways, and it cracked underneath me. But before that happened. I saw my neighbor, who was my age, across the stone wall in her neighbor in her parents' garden, who whose name was Lynn, but we called her Lamsey Woolsey, and we both had this blonde, curly hair. And I thought, 
oh my God, Lamsey Wolsey is going to see me and realize that I have this dual identity as Zaro. My day is made. You know, uh, this is amazing. Uh, so here I am at four years old, feeling like, uh, you know, I'm at the peak of all possibilities. <laughs> and then the branch cracked. And I thought, I didn't know about branches cracking. And I thought, but I knew instinctively I was going to fall. And I didn't know what to do, how to handle that. So I closed my eyes and I went inside and I watched my mind like one of those one-armed bandits spinning the pears and the apples and the eggs or whatever. And they finally stopped in, in a millisecond and it showed me what Zaro would do, which would do catch myself on my way down as I fell by holding onto the branch and that it would swing me under the branch with my downward momentum onto the next rooftop and all would be fantastic, okay? Well, I did that, and uh, that swung me under the branch. I wasn't that far off the ground. The whole branch came down on top of my heart and took me out for seven hours. Wow. I could have just jumped, jumped free of the branch if I had not been so mind-identified. I just paid attention to what was available to me. But instead, I was uh, you know, tripping out on being Zaro. So <laughs> there's a lot to learn about not believing in our minds. So uh, this is how I began the process. So while I was out for seven hours, I experienced having no body, heart, and mind. It was like being suspended in the night sky with no planets, no stars, as boundless, formless awareness. It was like um, all that was left, there was no me, no sensations, no feelings, no thoughts, uh, no ego. Uh, I was just this boundless ocean of formless awareness that was aware of itself. And it was so peaceful. And there was no thought, no me. And there was no me here or there, this or that, no contrast, no comparison. Uh, and then later, when I, when I came back into my four-year-old body, I, my four-year-old mind and heart asked, why would Zoro need to know that? And before I could even finish asking the question, kinesthetically, non-verbally, I was shown that everything in nature oscillated in and out of this void-like awakeness that was completely imageless and choiceless. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And so that helped me understand that I was not disconnected from my mother in her grief, who was crying behind closed doors. And I wasn't, she was not disconnected from her parents. And there was this unity underlying uh, all of form through this formless, ever-present, deathless consciousness, which I then began to explore experientially from beginning at the age of four. And that eventually led to uh, all the work that I've done in my life uh, to find out how the whole of humanity can share uh, a commonly sensed consciousness in a fully embodied way and have uh, enter into a collective enlightenment, if you will, on this planet as a species. Wow, that is an amazing story that if all of us had, wow, wouldn't that be, we'd be living heaven on earth. <laughs> Wow, that's super cool. And the Zorro story along with it. And then uh, at age 32, you also had another experience with collective consciousness theory. 
which is only a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, can you tell us about this grand epiphany that you experienced? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I just turned 70. And so that was a, a while back. <laughs> but after many series, after the near-death experience and many such epiphanies of communion and indivisibility with everyone and everything, every bug and leaf and creature and person and the whole of nature and the whole cosmos, uh, I came to this place uh, in uh, northeastern Australia. I was living in a garden shed on this non-denominational ashram. Uh, this English couple had provided us, uh, just a, like a handful of us, the ability to just be there and meditate and go out into nature and, and just sit in silence and stillness all day. So I had been doing that for a few months. And one night I was reading Krishnamurti, uh, speaking with uh, Vivekananda in his book, uh, Awakening Intelligence, something like that. And he said, uh, just make no effort at all uh, and find out what happens. Okay. So I, I said, that's really intriguing. I would love to learn how to not make any effort at all because normally I'm efforting and that creates a certain amount of anxiety and chronic tension. So I began to explore it. And as I did, I began to feel like I was losing all substance, all content, all uh, my character and my personality was dissolving. And all that was left was this awareness that had no form and seemed utterly choiceless. It was the only thing that remained. And I decided, well, okay, so maybe that's all that will be left of me. And I decided to focus on that indivisibly uh, without and just relax and make no effort. Well, I didn't have to sleep that night because I'd been meditating for days. And uh, when I got up in the morning, I just you know, lifted up and I was still gazing at this, at the gazing of awareness. And this sort of ectoplasmic glop came out in front of my eyes. And it was so awful and kind of turgid and yucky. I, I, I not, kinesthetically, I wanted to turn away and not, uh, not look on it. Uh, but because I was aware of awareness so strongly at this point, I just kept gazing at it out of curiosity as to see, well, what is this uh, weirdness that was arising? And after like maybe 10 seconds or so, it just dissolved and became part of the, uh, the energetic of awareness itself. And I was transported into undivided consciousness as this void, which had no boundary, like in the near-death experience. And I felt like I was everything and nothing and there was a bird chirping out outdoors, and it was no longer just outdoors. It was also in my arm, in my hand, in my heart, in my in my nose, in my everything within me. It was everywhere and nowhere all at once, and everything became like that. And it was so blissful and so effortless and so relaxed. I was like, "Wow, this is fantastic! I've become effortless, and I'm nobody, and I'm going nowhere forever." as everything and everybody and anybody. And so I was absolutely thrilled and lit up and turned on. And for some bizarre reason, I decided I was going to go buy a used car that I'd read of in the paper 
And it, it had become nighttime uh, at that point, at around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And I went out onto this deserted road, which is the only road anywhere in the area. I, and it was a full moon night. And it felt like the full moon was inside of me, just like the bird had been. And there was no thought. There was absolute silence in my mind, heart and body. And I was uniting everything that I experienced. It was like a complete uh, phantasm. The, the three-dreamdimensional world had become dreamlike. And I, as the void, was the only reality. Uh, and I was unbounded and timeless and never-present uh, and um, obviously was indestructible, which is amazing. And there was no thought about it at all. It was just wow. obvious that that was the truth. I saw these lights coming up up the road about you know a quarter mile away, and I had my first thought, which was, wouldn't it be nice if this person stopped, picked me up, and took me you know to Atherton, which is where this I could buy this car, which was an hour away, and so this person came up and ground to a halt in the dust on the side of the road rolled down her window, and it was this very diminutive little Japanese woman, and she seemed very dazed, and she said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm, I, I wanted to go to Atherton. And she said, well, get in the car, I'll take you. So I get in the car, and she said, what are you doing? Because there was this powerful sense of being one, she and I being one, and the car and the whole of existence being one together, because I was in this wordless, indivisible state. and. I didn't know what to say, and but it just came to me. I just said, uh, it, it seems like I'm everything that I'm conscious of. And she went, oh, and we just melted into oneness, consciousness. And then we were one body, heart, and mind. And when she spoke, her words came up in, from within me and inside of me and came into my heart and, and through my mind. And she felt me feeling her in that way. And when I spoke, my words came up through her and I could feel her feeling what I was sensing and feeling throughout all that she knew herself to be. And then we just drove on <laughs> and she said, uh, I'm very afraid because my husband brought me here and I don't know anybody. And I just had a newborn child who's I have staying right now with my neighbor. And I'm so terrified that she might be doing harm to my child. Mm. She said, well, do you think that's true? Do you think she would do any harm to my child? And I felt that with her, and I, I didn't know what to say. And then it just sort of came to me like, no, I, I don't think she, you have anything to worry about. And she relaxed and let go, and we were entered into even a deeper state of effortless unity. And we drove on in silence for an hour. Arrived in Atherton. Well, on the way, I, I had to ask her to stop and go to a phone booth. So I could call these people to ask them if I could buy their car that night. <laughs> it was that disjointed. It was just like being going with the flow. Who knows what's going to happen? I got to the payphone a few miles down the road, called them. They said, oh, yeah, we'll come and pick you up. Well, it turned out it was a 40-mile round trip for these people here at, late at night. And uh, they said, yeah, sure, we'll come and pick you up. So we got to Atherton, and we went into this little delicatessen and got something to drink. And she wanted to get together in another like week or so and uh, asked me if that would be okay. I said, sure, let's do that. So the people arrived. They brought me back to their place and sat me down on their kitchen table. Here it was like 10, 1030 at night. And uh, they started asking me 
these questions, which had to do with uh, the, the deepest problems that they were experiencing in their relationship. And so she says, uh, you know, my husband here, uh, he kicks the cows, you know, what can we do about that? And there was this sense of absolute indivisibility with them. And they, that was why they were asking me, because they felt somehow I would have insight into this problem. And I said, well, I felt them and I felt, well, I don't know what to say. And, and then I just came to me. I said, well, you know, you don't need to kick the cows, do you? We all looked at each other and felt it together. And he said, well, you're right. I, I don't need to kick the cows. Mm-hmm. And it felt completely resolved. Mm-hmm. She felt resolved. And we all three felt like, oh, that's great. Now we've resolved that. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, you know, how would you like to spend the night, you know, rather than drive home? And I said, well, that would be great. Thanks so much. And so they took me to this other room where they showed me where I could sleep. And, uh, you know, I pulled the cover, ultimately colored the covers over my head, closed my eyes, and I didn't sleep all night. I was just in timeless. The whole universe disappeared, and I was this sparkling, effervescent, kind of glimmering, kind of unending, immeasurable presence, this absence, which was had presence to it, which is pure consciousness was so blissful and perfectly beautiful that there was no sense of time. But some time later, um, on a relative level, I spontaneously opened my physical eyes and I, I went like, oh, my God, that's right. I live in this universe. I'd completely forgotten altogether. <laughs> I, even, I even had a body harder mind and that I lifted, lived in this universe. And it was so magnificent and beautiful and amazingly, you know, immeasurably extraordinary. And I was like, oh, how wonderful. Got up, paid them for the car, shared a big hug with them and drove off, you know. And then a week or so later. this Japanese woman who was came, but I was no longer in this state of consciousness. I was in separative self-consciousness and, uh, you know, as a separate self-isolating measurable, I could compare myself to her and everything and everyone. And she arrived and she was absolutely terrified, which she had told me about in the car when we first took off uh, a week before she said, you know, I've been so terrified uh being here all by myself and fearing that my neighbor's going to do harm to my child and my husband abandoning me here so here she was this terrified woman not peaceful not unafraid as i had been able to share with her before i was not able to relax her or make her feel at peace because i was not in unity consciousness anymore mm. and she demanded that i drive which she didn't before, like she wanted the man to be take charge, only she was taking charge of me to be the man to behave as a Japanese man should behave. (laughs) And we drove off to go have lunch together. But ultimately, after about an hour, it was just too painful and terrifying for her. I basically had to get out of the car because she couldn't handle it anymore. And I had to hitchhike home. So I learned from this experience that that I am uh, the buck stops here, that fear in this world, fear in relationship and the fear of other people really begins and ends with how I am. 
And so I, from this experience, uh, I've grown from the age of 32 after that near-death experience at four and all many more cumulative experiences since 32, now at 70, having worked with thousands of people internationally for over 40 years, bringing them into unity consciousness through this exercise that I offer, which I've offered largely for free for 40 years, uh, online and in person, or in person and now online for about 15 years, which you too can, uh, <laughs> having watched this, join yes. in every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Hawaii time. Okay. Just by sharing undivided awareness and sensing what we feel together, we can go from being in separative self-conscious to being sensing and feeling what we are as an undivided whole and feel completely peaceful and the mind goes silent and us feeling blissful and effortless together. And through films and social media that I've been working to present this, to popularize this uh, around the clock in multiple languages for free as a free membership and showcase it through feature and documentary films, we're in pre-production with them to help us shift whole viewing audiences into shared unity consciousness by having ensemble casts share unity consciousness by being in unity consciousness, share this indivisibility of awake awareness in a fully embodied way so that we can never go back again to being you know, egocentrically, self-centrically, self-isolating and anxious and feeling alone and unloved and unfelt by one another and by ourselves. Yes, thank you, Sperry. That was a very powerful story. Lots came to mind. First of all, you took me on a journey with you and I started to go out there in the beginning. I, and I had to bring myself back. So you just telling me that story took me with you. Very beautiful. And then brings up a lot as far as uh, how we treat each other. You're right. And when we're in that power of presence, the, the state of our presence says a lot. It's huge as far as what effects upon our world on the outside. Just as you said, oh, this naturally happened when I was in that consciousness. Everything was beautiful. And so that reflection from you was happening outside. And then when you went back into that separate feeling, the same thing happened in your reflection. I love that. The power of your presence, the power of your being, um, Big themes in empathy and compassion also came up and the power of those actual feelings, you know, the actual enactment, <laughs> not just the talking, oh, compassion, it's kindness. Oh, no, this is you're actually projecting that from that void. So also when you're in that effortless state, do you think that was being projected from the void that you were experiencing? How would you Thank you for that question, Daisy. I would say the, the really amazing thing is that the, the void cannot be avoided. It is everywhere and nowhere, always. And the real secret of the void as the source origin of space, time, energy, and matter, mind and body, that is causing this universe to be reunited and regenerated and represented to itself, causing it to accelerate in its expansion uh, as consciousness causing everything to be recreated and represented, that this universe is the expansion of consciousness, where the void 
cannot be divided against itself. That's the key feature. It's not a projection of the void. It's rather that the void is the observer of this formless that causes all form to be reunited and regenerated and represented to itself. So form is being is temporal. It's constantly being recreated and represented to itself by this re, this localization of what we call the non-local whole. The non-locality non is taking everything as an undivided whole and localizing it by being the void, being the observer of form. And the void is dimensionless. And so it is a, it acts from every dimensionless point in three dimensions. Three dimensions is a geometry of dimensionless points of the relationship between length, width, and depth between dimensionless points that when you stretch these points apart, they then have forces and fields, electromagnetic and gravitational between them. But at the same time and moment, as they are as three-dimensional fields and forces and the speed of light limiting the rate of and frequency and wavelength of communications, you have all points being the same points simultaneously. So there is no separation in time or space between any two points in zero D or what we call the fourth dimension, which is just another zero D point. Instead of it being, uh, as Einstein said, a space time where time is a dimension, it's rather that space is being reunited by time, which is timeless. Time is the observer of space, reuniting all of space, energy, and matter, mind and body as an indivisible unity in an incomparably, infinitely, incomparably unique way, moment by moment by moment, a billion, a trillion times a second. And so we're actually recreating creation, actually, each one of us, and we're doing it together as an instantaneous, indivisible, recreative consciousness. And we can become conscious of that by becoming aware of awareness by making no effort whatsoever, which is amazing, that makes it even easier than it, rather than difficult. How do you do that then? As, and how does it feel? I'd like to ask you both. How do you get there first? And then well, how does it feel when it's working through you? Well, we, well we're, we're all, it's already a given that we're awareness reuniting the whole cosmos and localizing it as us in some incomparably unique way. So we usually get caught up in the content of what we're perceiving physically, emotionally, and mentally, intuitively, as a soul, as a spirit. You know, obviously, that's very arresting. It's like when we step in front of a mirror, we go like, oh, look what I look like. I got egg on my face. Let me clean the <laughs> egg off my face. Uh, you know, my hair is not looking too good here. I'm getting older, or I don't know what. So we get very caught up in the image. But like the mirror, the mirror receives and reflects us choicelessly without any image of its own. By using awareness to become aware of its mirror-like qualities, which are choiceless and imageless, awareness becomes aware of itself, or we could say awareness becomes conscious of awareness. We develop, we cultivate, deliberately cultivate conscious awareness, 
which is what the sadhus and sages and yogis and for you know thousands of years uh, in Hinduism and Buddhism have been uh, advocating that we we just they say it all comes down to this just become aware of awareness that's it when awareness becomes undivided from awareness then we see through awareness like we see through our eyes or hear through our ears or feel through our heart or or understand through our mind when awareness becomes aware of itself by us choosing like in meditation we choose to be aware of the quality and presence of our timeless ever-present awakeness which is an etern- which eternally now it's always now our awakeness and we become we turn our relative body heart and mind all of our perceptual faculties of sight and smell and hearing and touch and taste and feeling and thought we turn them around as a relative body heart and mind to the absolute nature of our timeless unborn deathless uh, unborn immortal nature as void based awakeness and by doing that the relative body heart and mind becomes woven together and linked ultimately through practice you know it takes years sometimes you have to really like work at it effortlessly ironically enough <laughs> surrendering to that actuality that is the underpinning the very groundless ground of our being and by doing that the the relative becomes bonded and indivisible from the absolute as even isaac newton said you know he said the the relative cannot exist with the absolute so absolute space time and relative space time are indivisible from each other einstein tried to make sense of that by saying well let's find something that is does not vary out of which we can build the whole of physics and so we know that we have to make the laws of physics appear the same to every observer and so how do we do that well if the observer is at rest then of course all observers at rest are going to observe and experience the laws of physics to be the same but what about if one observer is accelerating and another observer observer is at rest well one time dilation is happening they're going to to us if they go out and come back at the speed of light uh they're not going to have aged and we're going to have aged dramatically compared to them but the laws of physics are going to be the same for them as it are for us even though physically at a relative level one of us has aged dramatically and the other has aged comparatively little so how is that all possible so einstein worked that out through special and general relativity well he also said which I, I don't think we're really realizing what he the full import of what he was saying he said the observer is independent of absolute space and time and that's what the physics that i have pioneered now for 45 years and been largely ignored by the physics community to show that the observer is actually timeless and independent of absolute space and time and that it is the only constant in the whole of consciousness consciousness the speed of light actually can vary depending upon the medium which it's the light is moving in but the observer is unvarying it is timeless and unborn and uncreated and immortal it's our immortal nature it's our spiritual nature and we all share it it's not there's no me and you at that level there's we all are each other there's only one universe one life <clears throat> and so we are an indivisible unity like there's only one universe one life the the life force is as as the extraterrestrials in the law of one that was channeled back in 1980 by raw uh, if some of you know that 
There's the law of one. The extraterrestrials say, they say they're billions of years ahead of us, and they were once at one time three-dimensional like us. And they've come back to help us, give us a step up and to understand how we are evolving and where we're going in our evolution towards global enlightenment on this planet so that there is this oneness. And that doesn't make them better or more, even though there may be millions of years or even billions of years in advance of us, there's only this oneness. And they're helping us. They've been tweaking us and fiddling with our DNA for 300,000 years, they say, to help us be even better than they have been by being more emotionally resilient, more capable of carrying on this awakening of all sentient beings in the universe. So there's this, the whole evolution of the universe is one group, the Ebens, who we've actually gone and stayed with for, for over 10 years once. A, a group of and the military went and actually stayed with the Ebens on their planet quite a ways away. It was quite amazing. You can actually read and learn and watch about the uh, one of the military people telling uh, Emery Smith about it on Gaia television. It's really on cosmic disclosure. There's so many cosmic disclosures talking about uh, Emery's experience with ETs actually working with them side by side, uh, beside with them as a medical doctor and how they can appear and disappear at will and how they are. They're so loving. They're so united. They're so in touch with billions of people in their species that, that they are, their neurophysiological psychology is way in advance of ours. And they can so... They're so able, so so mature in their psychophysiology, they're able to focus on where they got to go and they can disappear physically and reappear wherever they focused on being. And we are learning how to be able to do that as a species. And they're helping us and encouraging us to be able to do this without taking away our free will. They want us to go through all the slings and arrows of our human insanity and suffer all of our craziness and all our divisiveness and you know, judgment and blaming and eviality of the power elite trying to take us over and kill us all and everything else. They want us to get through this and survive it and learn from it so that we can be more uh, awake and aware as a species on this planet as part of this sentient awakening in this universe. Yes, and coming back to what's called the metahuman, which we once were, but then fell, and now coming back again into that time where we are capable of being that, which is kind of amazing, really, because, wow, I can fly, you mean? Oh, okay, well, how does that work? And what you're talking about when you start reading and studying and researching and like with the star beings and yes, what they can do and how they're helping. Wow. It really does blow your mind. You know, how do I become a human? Right. I'm like, Oh, I think I'll just stay simple Daisy. <laughs> well, Daisy, remember when we were, you know, all of us, everybody listening here, uh, whether Sorry, you're listening now thinking. or listening in on the recording, when we were born, nature created us to be innocent and completely surprised and overwhelmed and unknowing and innocent and ignorant about everything. And yet we were not afraid. Our mind was being blown, but we were happy. 
have our mind blown when we were little, <laughs> you know, one-year-old little babies. We were like, ga, 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 goo, 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 goo. daddy. We are, we are unafraid. I mean, I remember yeah. when my son, for example, I would hold him lying on, on, on his back on my arm with his head in my hand, and I could zoom him around like this in the air, and he would like squeak and enjoy. He was not afraid of falling right. or hurting himself. He had no idea of that there was any possibility of anything painful or harmful. So that's how we need to get back to that as, uh, you know, now that we're many decades older and we can get back to that innocence and that surprise and that delight and that knowing that we don't know, knowing that there's nothing to know, that we, the void offers us the ability to be unknowing and unknowable. And how by not knowing and knowing that we don't know, we can reunite all of our knowledge, all that we've learned in our entire lives as an undivided whole and synergize it and synthetically unite it and weave it all together so that we are able to now receive and reflect all of the experiences that we've had in our whole life and all the experiences that we might have in the future in the ever-present now and grow in wisdom and knowledge and insightfulness and intuitive compassion and empathy towards everyone and everything, every bug, every ant, every mosquito, everything that lives, every, every leaf, uh, all creatures in the universe, and not be afraid of these weird-looking ETs, some of which look exactly like us, more or less, and some that look like, you know, praying mantises, others that look like ants or <laughs> reptiles, you know. Some of them are very evil reptiles. Some of them are very lovely reptiles. Huh. But we need to love unconditionally, even our enemies. As the Dalai Lama has said, the real challenge is, is to love our enemies as ourselves, because that's where the real learning is. So if we can unconditionally love those who have harmed us and harmed the ones we love, killed, murdered the ones we love, if we can love those people, those people who just don't know any better, as Christ said on the cross, you know, Father, forget them, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, and as Eckhart Tolle said, remember to forgive yourself as well, because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, we have a lot of work here to do yes. to let go of who we think we are and really receive and reflect and allow and accept who and what we all are and be forgiving, compassionate, and empathic, and be indivisible from everyone and everything, and be everyone and everything. Absolutely. Wow. So beautiful. If we could all just stop and do that, basically, it would be so amazing. And having that empathy. Aren't we doing it right, Aren't we doing it right now a little bit? Aren't we doing it a little bit right now? <laughs> I think so. We are actually... And nibbling or nibbling, you know. When you nibbling. spoke, you know, with the Dal about the Dalai Lama and how Christ said, "Forgive them; they don't know what they do." And if we stop and just turn and look at the situation in that sense, of course, Dalai Lama is all about compassion, everything compassion. It would stop that cycle, that negative back and forth cycle that doesn't get anywhere. Really, it's just back and forth, back and forth, like the blame game back. It's just, it's like fire, fire, back and forth, hurt, mm. hurt. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like Huckleberry Finn, where there were, everybody was feuding with each other. You kill my brother, I'll kill your mother, you know, and 
that sort yeah. of thing, just shooting for generations and generations yeah. with each other. That's sort of what's happening on a global level. Well, if we look at if we look at what Christ said there, you know, and we look at the the crucifixion, which is absolutely the most blood curdling, horrible thing that any anything could, more painful and yeah. horrific thing that anybody could impose on another human being. Yeah, and we think. Yeah, okay, so we could all feel guilty about crucifying Christ, but turn it around as well. Don't deny that aspect of it, but think about the fact that I feel by being in separative self-consciousness, we are crucifying ourselves every single moment by isolating and separating ourselves from the divinity of what we truly are as an indivisible unity that is God and goddess and, and divine and immeasurable and timeless and multifaceted in the sense of everything like you said that even the animals and the four directions as the natives speak of appreciating the air the water the fire and the earth all have consciousness in themselves which the natives in the shamanic traditions really bring about the appreciation for the natural environment and mother earth Imagine if, uh, if every, you know, most people who've been living in the, you know, this much more cozy, uh, controllable uh, world that we live in of conveniences, if they had to go live and survive in raw nature, like the Aboriginal, uh, you know, Native Americans or the Aboriginals in Australia or something like that. I mean, you would have to learn pretty quickly to, to come into tune with nature. And feel one with it in order to be guided by uh, your greater uh, intelligence and sensitivity. Otherwise, you wouldn't last very long. I mean, uh, we've lost touch, as you're saying, Daisy, with this greater sensitivity of being indivisible from all all yes. that is alive. All even, even the, the air the we breathe, just the air alone, having appreciation and awareness of the air we breathe, or the water that we use and grateful as we're feeling the water on us and what a blessing what blessings we have every day we're a complete miracle i mean everything is a miracle there's nothing that's not a miracle i mean this is a complete and utter miracle what we are if we don't notice that and we think we're this that or another thing going here and going there getting this because we don't think we've got it all already we just make a mess of everything. It's like tangling string up and then not being able to untangle it, or, or so we think. But by relaxing and making no effort whatsoever, we think we can never untangle how tangled up we are in, un, in our own unconsciousness. By making no effort whatsoever, lo and behold, we become untangled. Yes, and do you <laughs> and think everything... Liberated. Awesome. And do you think everything flows for what a person needs after that? Like, you know, people focus on the intention and the manifestation a lot. Oh, I'm going to intend for this and I'm going to manifest this. But you're talking about, oh, step back. 
So do you think from there, everything happens naturally for you that you need? Instead of doing the, you know, the law of attraction thing where you want to get the top down Hollywood red convertible with the, with the babe or the guy with the money, with the house and the whole thing. Once you realize that uh, you've already got it all, you already are it. There was that wonderful film I, w- I recommend to everybody called I Heart Huckabees. Uh, a strange title for a film. Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin are so great, funny uh, comedians. They explore this whole thing, uh, you know, with the contrast and go into unity consciousness and discover this way of getting free of this mind-made, chop suey, fragmented consciousness. Wow. <laughs> In the funniest way you can imagine. The guy who is going through the whole thing as the archetype trying to learn about this comes into Dustin Hoffman's office where Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin are existential therapists. And uh, so Dustin Hoffman takes out this white blanket and he puts his hand up in one part of the white blanket and his other hand up in the white blanket. And he says, look, it's all one. This is the Eiffel Tower and this is a hamburger over here. Okay. And so the guy says, oh, you mean it's all one? He says, yes, you got it. And then he puts him in a mummy bag and zips him up. So he's in the darkness and he's confronted with his unconscious, all of his imagery which he can't escape then in the darkness of his inescapable presence of his own consciousness. And he's like in this nightmare of his own imagination. And wow. he's like, ah, get me out of here. And the Dustin Hoffman lets him out of the mummy bag. And he's like, oh, my God. That's <laughs> anyway, so funny. Great film. Really a great film. Oh, that sounds <laughs> great. Oh, wow. I like films like that that have a lesson with it or deeper meanings or (laughs) subliminal lessons behind what's going on. Speaking of, you have some films, Sperry. I'm I'm working on these films. I've been working on this series of films, feature and documentary films, because I felt like, you know, we're under this oppression that, you know, anybody that tries, you know, the last thing that the power elite want is this, is unity consciousness. That would mean that they... Oh, yeah. They have to divide, they have to divide us in order to conquer us. Okay. So they don't want us to be all unified and having access to our combined intelligence in a fully embodied way. So I've been waiting kind of patiently to, you know, get all the funding together and, you know, bring the, the people together who are really able to come together and collaborate on this for 40 years or so. And it's in its own flow. I wanted it to happen sooner, but, you know, it'll happen in its own time. You know, I got one point where I was kind of pushing the envelope and then they started, you know, about 20 years, they started hitting me with uh, microwaves. And I could tell that if I went any further to try to showcase this on inter- in the international news desk to demonstrate it scientifically that we're indivisible and in instrumentation, which over 25 years ago, I was actually able to demonstrate using neuroscientific brain research laboratories that were indivisible and in instrumentation. Even when we're thousands of miles apart, we can actually demonstrate this empirically, scientifically, uh, and measurably. Uh, and so, you know, I was one of the people that helped to lead the field and being able to show what was called the staring reflex, that our awareness is undivided. We can stare at somebody over a closed-circuit camera monitor system when the other person has no known way of knowing when or if or for how long they're being stared at on galvanic and central nervous system monitors. 
we can see that when we're able to look at them in an undivided way over closed circuit camera monitor system, when they have no known way of when they're being looked at, and we look at the recording, electrophysiological recordings before they're stared at, and the electrophysiological recordings after they're stared at, we can see that they're affected by uh, the undivided attention being directed at them through the camera. And this has been repeated in experiment after experiment and replicated by independent laboratories, even scientific applications international corporation, which does work for the federal United States government with 144,000 employees. And every single time this experiment has been replicated in Europe and in other independent uh, laboratories, they find the same results, that awareness, how it's directed, how well we pay attention, what we pay attention to, affects our central and autonomic nervous system uh, thousands of miles apart when we're seemingly separated on the, on the surface of this planet. So humanity, even though there's seven and a half billion of us spread around the surface of this planet, we have as one of our greatest innate natural resources, the ability to be aware of awareness individually and indivisibly together as a species and enter into an enlightened state as a collective consciousness. Wow. We can show that scientifically in the films. We can actually show it happening as recorded in the film, in the making of these of these feature and documentary films. Isn't that incredible? That so is incredible. Towards, I presented that to the United Nations in 1992. Can you believe that? Wow. So, uh, so this has been a long time coming, Daisy and everybody. Uh, and I'm so happy to report that this is this is reality. This is our actuality that we are able to step into now together by just being aware of awareness, which the Buddhist monks and sadhus and sages and Hindus and yogis and sages have been advocating for thousands of years. You know, that going back in the, what's called the bone tradition, the B-O-N tradition, it's been 18,000 years. If you just, it was advocated that if you just sit down and you accept and allow everything to be exactly as it is, without resisting, just the feeling it and, and sensing it and being it indivisibly, that you enter into undivided awakeness and you enter into this bliss, what is called the pure and total state of awakeness, which is the only invariant, the only unchanging aspect of consciousness. And we become aware of that as a relative body, heart, and mind. And so that all of our changes, all of our perceptions, everything we're seeing and feeling and sensing and smelling and tasting and thinking and uh, and in, embodying becomes united and orchestrated and organized effortlessly with wow. everyone else's bodies, hearts, and minds. And we have an awakening on this planet into blissful unity consciousness with every bug and leaf and creature on this planet. And we are guided by that, in, by that awakened intelligence to have harmony. And as Teir de Chardin said, when we harness the powers of love for the second time, we will, it will be as though we have harnessed the powers of fire, like Polythemus or whatever his name, when he was, when Zeus tied him by chains to a rock because he had released the powers of fire thousands of years ago. Zeus was very angry that the vulture would come down and eat out his liver and it would grow, his liver would grow back and the vulture would come down and eat out his liver again and torture him 
for eons and eons for having uh, given the, the power of fire to humanity. Well, as Charles de Chardin, when the power of fire is brought to earth again for the second time, it will be as if the powers of love are, have been harnessed by humanity and we will have uh, this newosphere, this awakening of a commonly sensed consciousness as love itself, as unconditioned unity consciousness. Beautifully said. Wow. That is beautiful. Uh, it reminds me of what Buddha said also. He said, when you look around and see that everything is okay, just as it is, you'll tilt your head to the sky and laugh. <laughs> so Yes, it all becomes very humorous and joyful and absolutely delightfully funny. Just being everything and nothing is, is the most glorious entertainment. <laughs> yes, yes. This is great, Sperry. I had a wonderful time uh, during this interview. I do believe we're coming up or over already, which is fine. I think your final punchline was great, but if you have any more final thoughts, and then if people want to get involved, do you have openings for your film or are there anything that people can get um, involved with? Yeah, I I would recommend the first step would be to come to the the Sunday gatherings at 8 a.m. Hawaii time. Pretty much you can be almost 10 or 12 hours as far as that in, in Europe or even the Emirate Republic. You can get on le- fairly late in the evening and participate. If, uh, if people in Australia are going the other direction really would like uh, me to create another group that would make, be at a more favorable time for them. I'd be happy to do that. Please just write through to me in the description link for this interview. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sperry. I really am at a blank. (laughs) So empty, void. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I hope we can do this again. Thank you, Daisy. You're so lovely and so beautiful. Thank you so much, dear one. You're so glorious and so grateful. You've really made it very possible for me to feel very free to share all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Dizzy Oz. Thanks for listening to my Conscious Living interviews. Consider supporting me in my works by subscribing to my YouTube channel at Daisy Oz Productions. Also, you are welcome to contribute via PayPal on my website at daisyoz.com. And thank you to Dimitri Posudin, who provided the awesome theme music. Thank you to Scott Holmes, who provided the innovative interlude music.